Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Scott Crone. Thanks for being on the show again, Scott. Thanks. My pleasure. Good to see you again. I hope everybody's been well in your family. Yes, they have. And we're very blessed and, and grateful to this show to keep moving forward and grateful for the listeners as well. And, and Scott, for you coming back on the show. Just so just so the listeners know, Scott was a previous guest at his show, WS483. We talked about converting distressed buildings into self-storage. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that and learn a lot more about Scott and his expertise. But in case you didn't hear that, a little about him. While obtaining his degree in architecture, Scott worked as a project manager for Optima Incorporated. During his time at Optima, Scott's responsibilities included notable projects such as a 400-unit Coromandel in Deerfield, Illinois, and 40-unit Hedgerow in, how do you say that, Scott? Winneka. Winneka. <laughs> I would have not have got that right. Illinois. And a 51-unit Optima Center in Wilmette, Illinois. In 2012, a Scott funded Coda Management Group, a firm who specializes in managing real estate assets. Since its inception, Coda has manage a wide range of real estate, including single and multifamily homes, retail, commercial, warehouse, and self-storage, and multi-use flex athletic spaces. Currently, the platform of investments is in excess of $55 million. Scott, congratulations on your success and just looking forward to having you back on the show and another discussion, just bringing out some of your expertise that can help the listeners and myself. You know, I want us to just jump right into though, but any updates from you and your business, you know, that you want to share before we just dive in? I know, you know, the listeners and myself just want to know too, just how, what's happened during the pandemic and maybe things, how, what's changed and, you know, futuristic planning, things like that. You're doing too that can help us. But before we do that, anything you want to share with them, any updates that's happening with you and your business right now? Our last session was right before the pandemic. So we had the privilege of being able to open up three facilities in the in the midst of the pandemic. And one was here in Chicago. Originally, you know, everybody wanted to shut down things, but self-storage was deemed essential. So I really fought, you know, to work to keep our facilities open to help serve the community. You know, just the mass displacement that really happened in, in March or the fact that people couldn't move was really critical. So we opened up the one in Chicago and we're now over 35% occupied that six month period of time, seven month period of time. We opened up one in Milwaukee and then we just opened up one in uh, Toledo and we're finalizing one in Dayton and we bought a facility down in Louisville, Kentucky. And so we've continued to expand. You know, it's consistent with the model of self-storage and recessionary markets. We are continuing that focus and, you know, keeping investing in self-storage during this period of time. Nice. Well, I want to jump into some of that. Even thinking about expanding during that time, some people are, you know, we've expanded. So many people have grown during this time while others have really pulled back saying, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe we should wait, you know? And so just, I would love to hear your thoughts around that and just the thoughts of, you know, pushing forward even through this time of, of a pandemic, maybe your thought process when all this was happening and how you determined, you know what, it's time to buy some more facilities. Well, I, you know, I went back and looked at the last four recessionary markets, and it's interesting you brought up Coromandel because when we were beginning that project, it was, you know, inflation was very high. You know, banks were coming to us and offering us 
to buy points so that our customers could have you know better buying power and stuff like that in terms of that marketplace. And that was a 400 unit development. So it was a, a very you know, risk time to be, you know, doing 400 units in a recessionary type market. But when I look back at all the last four recessions that we've been through, self-storage has slightly dipped and then rebounded aggressively. You know, it's been a pattern. It's been a, you know, consistent throughout each of the recessionary markets. Now, technically we are not in a recession at this point in time, but there's a lot of indicators and the Fed is, you know, both looking at the fiscal and the monetary policies to address you know, what they can do to keep us from being in a, in a recession and, you know, doing all that they can. But you know, as long as this pandemic stays active and, you know, we can't have retail and hospitality and all those different things active in the marketplace, it's certainly going to be impacting our economy for sure. So, you know, we've been viewing it and preparing for it as a recession. And I think the fact that Blackstone is coming into the self-storage market and acquiring $1.4 billion worth of uh, self-storage assets at the, at the front end of the recession tells you, you know, that's a pretty good indicator in the marketplace where they think the market's going. That's a pretty large investment. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> they didn't do that without doing a little research, for sure. Uh, no, in the last recession, that's when Extra Space bought their portfolio for about $1.2 So some big major moves in the last two recessionary markets in the self-storage and arena. You know, during that time and making that decision, did you experience any pushback, let's say from uh, other operators or, or especially investors that maybe have been with you a long time and maybe they're saying, Scott, you know, wait a minute, you know, this is the pandemic, you know, should we be investing right now? There is that concern, but I, you know, it was, this is an interesting pandemic or recessionary market because it was also in conjunction with an election and the dichotomy of investment, you know, strategies that were going to be employed within the tax markets that were impacting it as well. So people were wondering, you know, you know, do I need to deploy capital now? You know, should I take my shelter capital gains at this point in time? Or am I going to get hit up in the future? And so it was a combination of not just the recessionary market, but also what might be coming down the pipeline in terms of changes in the tax code. So what about, you know, the pandemic hits, what was changed in your, maybe your thought process and underwriting, you know, when the pandemic hit, did anything change as far as how you're evaluating deals moving forward? The time frame took longer. We didn't change our criteria in the underwriting, but obviously the ability to facilitate the due diligence was greatly impacted. The other thing that we saw was within the, the lending field, a lot of the lenders were getting tied up with the PPP and the emergency disaster relief. And so at first they pulled back in terms of their lending criteria. And then in August and April, they began opening up and then they got hit by the second wave of the PPP. So it's been a little bit more of a challenge in terms of working with the banks to, you know, get through the underwriting, the due diligence process because of the overwhelming workload that they've had to increase based upon, you know, the stimulus that the government has been trying to implement. What about any other changes the pandemic has brought, maybe about the operations side? Well, operations for sure. You know, the operators that we have facilitated, our facilities have gone more touchless so that you can implement most of the stuff before you even get to the facility. Some of our friends are going with a totally keyless entry system where they can go remote locks. We don't feel that our facilities, you know, that's the best use of our allocations. And so we still have, you know, personal locks on them. But everything else along the lines, you can do paperless and touchless. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's just streamlining it. One of the things that we did offer was, you know, since our building was completely empty, we offered an economic discount and economic incentives. But we also assured that your locker would not be within six feet of any other locker because you know, the entire building was open at that point in time. 
And so it gave us a lot of flexibility in terms of people moving in and people, you know, bringing their stuff into the building. What about, you know, moving forward, you know, I ask almost every guest now just about your thoughts on the next six to 12 months in the real estate market. You know, what are your thoughts and how are, what are your plans moving forward? We're continuing, you know, we're aggressive. We just came to terms with another facility that we're going to be working on in the Tennessee market. And so we're expanding that portfolio, but we're also looking at existing portfolios. So potentially B and C classes versus just A class. And so we're we're diversifying not just the conversions, but also looking to how we can improve operations. We've also started our own brand called One Stop Self Storage. And so we will be implementing that on the smaller facilities and, and going with more of a completely, totally, uh, you know, remote operated type facilities and stuff. So we're definitely changing and altering, but expanding within the self storage market. So you say different classes. Is that something like, say, a class A project just because you all are going to build it? Or why the change in classes? Well, the different classes, uh, class C is more of what we would consider like a penny stock. So it's like a more of a mom and pop operator, third generation, you know, more rural type facility. And so consistent yields, but, you know, not great appreciation. But we see some potential opportunity growth in terms of how we can manage it and improve on the cap rate and the performance that way. Class B would be more suburban, similar to class C in appearance, but maybe climate controlled, but still drive up type facilities. The one we're going to be doing in Tennessee will be a class B facility. So it would all be just ground level. It'll be an expansion. We're going to be adding around 200 units to an existing facility, new construction. And then class A is more urban and, you know, drive-in type facility, all, you know, environmentally controlled. And so class B, A, B, or C does not mean necessarily a good neighborhood and a bad neighborhood. It means more of the, the quality and the features of the facility. What about just expected growth, you know, over the next year? I know we talked about underwriting a little bit, but, you know, what's your, you know, growth expectations say over the next year versus the year after and the year after that? We've continued on our five-year plan, which was to have 10 facilities in five years. And so we're on pace to do that. It's just, we're just changing, you know, we're going to continue the development. We're going to continue to look for that expansion. I mean, we're doing that in Tennessee, but that's a, it's a class A facility and we're going to be expanding it with class B, more of a working class. So it's, it's a nice combination. And then, you know, we're looking for B and C type facilities where we can improve on the performance of the management. I don't know. You have some mind-blowing facts about self-storage investing, and would you share them? Well, I think the biggest one, thank you, is that the fact that it's, you know, a lot of people refer to it as recessionary proof, but I tend to, I'm more comfortable saying it's recessionary resistant. I think it is the most resistant asset class in all of real estate. I also think it's the most predictable in terms of modeling. And so it takes the guesswork out of what's going on. And that's one of the things that when we were looking at either the multifamily or the single family, there's just a lack of predictability. For instance, when Trump came in the office and he was elected in 16, coming into office on 17, you know, there's this a huge excitement and we had this single family home coming on the market and, you know, everything exploded in December and January and our home came on the market in February and there's not another single family sale, new construction in that town the rest of the year. And so, you know, after home sitting on the market, we had to rent it for a year and we sold it a year later to break even. So, you know, we had to drop the price by 20% in order just to move it. And so, you know, that sort of, there's no justification, there's no explanation in the marketplace, but with self-storage, it's very predictable in terms of patterns. And so, you know, we can take advantage of those situations within the marketplace. 
What about some just proven passive investments? Well, what we try to do, and that's one of the things what we like about the Class A facilities is the fact that we get both appreciation as well as cash flow. And so we view that as a growth stock. We view Class B as a blue chip. And so, which is going to yield a consistent performance in both an upward, a bull or a bear market. And so, you know, what we're looking for in a class A is if we can buy something at 11 or $12 a square foot, you know, which is well below replacement cost and we're in, we can have a, a 20, 30% competitive advantage against our competitors. And so that's, we can alter our, fluctuate our pricing to ensure that we get people in the building. And so that's one of the things that we really focus on is when we go in and buy, what price point are we going into and buying? And so that's one of our key criteria when we evaluate a deal. We're looking at another type facility in Ohio right now. We're, we're going through that same process and determining whether or not we're going to have that competitive advantage within the marketplace. Within the class Bs, we look for how we can improve the economic performance of these things because we know that they will perform in both a good market and a bad market. If we can improve our, our management expenses and bring them down from like 55 to 35%, that's a 20% you know, improvement in our portfolio right off the bat. And so that, those are some of the things that, we're, that we underwrite and look for that we can make sure that we can take advantage in those marketplaces. Any tips that you swear by? Well, the one big tip I think is, you know, you don't make your money on the sale, you make it on the buy. And so I was helping a, a couple evaluate a deal and, you know, they were like, well, we want to buy it because it's going to be good in the future. And, you know, we're willing to, you know, pay the owner more because of that. And, you know, my response to them is, why are you paying the owner now for work that you're doing in the future? That doesn't seem right. You know, it's like, why do you have to keep paying on this, on this note when you've bought the property and you're doing all the work? So I think that's one of the key things, especially in this, in this marketplace, is to understand where the market's going within that asset class and then not overpaying for it because it's, it's just going to put more and more pressure on your, your ability to perform. That's one thing. And the other thing is to really make sure we understand the marketplace, make sure that we understand that community, that asset class, so that we can you know, adjust and have the flexibility to move within the product. We're doing that specifically in our Milwaukee project. As soon as we opened it, we learned that before we opened it up, the demographics suggested that based upon the affluence of the community, we should have a smaller locker configuration because the less affluent the community, the higher they're willing to pay per square foot for smaller units. But as soon as we opened this market irregularity hit where people were coming in, we had like 10 people come in and said that they wanted a 10 by 20, which is incredibly huge for in, you know more of an urban marketplace. And so we didn't have that many of them. So I told our operators, take out the middle walls of the 10 by 10s and start offering 10 by 20s. And so we're reducing our unit count, but we're increasing our occupancy by doing that. Interesting. Now, I appreciate you sharing that. I just think it's a lot for us to think about and take in. You know, Scott, do you have, uh, you know, just daily habits of any kind that you are disciplined about that have helped you achieve success? Absolutely. Well, there's, I should say, there's, I absolutely have daily habits, but you know, so everyone has their own definition of success. <laughs> we want to hear good ones, you know? Yes. You know, the first thing I do is I'm up at five, five thirty in the morning and, you know, we're going for, you know, quiet walks on the beach and during the, you know, spring through fall, we're, we're paddle boarding and we're out on the water and it's quiet. It gives your mind an ability to pull back and relax you know, we just had the privilege of doing an interview with Arshay Cooper, who's in the movie, The Most Beautiful Thing. And it's about these inner city kids from the city of Chicago 
who were asked to join a rowing team at their, their school and they became the first black crew team. And he said the first thing that I really learned was being in the peace on the water and just the silence that he's never had that time before to allow his mind to shut down and reflect and just calm itself down. And I think that's an important discipline for each and every one of us is just to, to have time for solitude and reflection and pull back. And so for us, that's how I, I'm able to create it in the morning and the walks on the beach and going paddle boarding or, you know, getting off to an early morning. And, you know, that sets the tone for the rest of the day. Yeah, whether it's on the beach or in your living room with a cup of coffee, you need to have that time, right? Absolutely. You know, my, my mentor, he starts at 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the morning. He makes a, a fire in the fireplace and drinks some very intense, you know, Middle Eastern tea. And that's, that's his daily routine. <laughs> so, Anything else in your morning routine that you can share that's like, man, I've got to do this to get my day going or maybe how you schedule your morning? Well, not so much just in the morning, but I've also embarked on a, a two-year program of transformation that I just started this fall. And it, we're going to meet quarterly and it's a two and a half year program. And for me, if I'm going to be an effective leader, I first have to work on myself. You know, I, I can't expect others to be improving if I'm not improving. And so that's one of the things that I'm focusing on this year and, you know, engaging. So there's a lot of reading. There's a lot of self-reflection. There's, you know, it goes into each of these quarter things. I mean, we have to read like four or five books within the quarter. And so, you know, that's part of my, not necessarily my morning program, but my program throughout the day. What's your best source for meeting a new investors right now? We're certainly seeing the growth and expansion on that. You know, people are just becoming more familiar with us as we've expanded and grown. Podcasts such as yours has been very helpful. But we've also been pursuing other venues in the marketplace to get exposure for us to meet people. And so we've joined different organizations and associations which influence, you know, decision makers within the marketplace just to get our name and our exposure out there. And so that those are some of the things that we're we're following. And one of the things we're doing in response, we're we're launching a whole porthole this quarter that will be launched in 2021 where our investors will have the ability to go online and you know from a perspective in, investor to seeing what the investment could include that will have the offering, the subscription, all those information. And once they invest, it will have all of their portfolio and their K-1s and everything that they'll have at the disposal throughout their, their investment period with us. And so we're, we're launching that porthole this year. What's the number one thing that's contributed to your success? I think a long-term perspective. You know, I think from beginning, you know, when I was at Optima, that, you know, it was tough. It was, you know, when I went from being a part-time employee and student to a full-time employee, you know, the owner mandated eight weeks of 80 hours. And so, I mean, I was like making like a buck 25. <laughs> and so like the people who had stayed part-time were crushing it because they were making, you know, three times the regular rate. But, you know, if I hadn't had that long-term perspective of, you know, what, what was my long-term goal, then I would have quit and given up. And so I've always had more of a longer perspective in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. And I think that's very important when you're investing is not to lose sight of the, the long-term focus. Your short-term investment means might have to change because of the marketplace, but having a long-term perspective is, is critical. The other thing I would say is, you know, people ask me like, how do you control the market? You don't, you don't control the market, but you respond, you can control how you respond to the market. And so we, we never try to set the market, but we try to respond to the market. And so that's one of the things that we really focus on is how we can best respond in, in each of the markets that we're facing. And how do you like to give back? 
Well, I mean, one of the things I'd lo- like to do for your community is if people find a facility or they find a building that they think is a good potential and they want to get into it, if you go onto our website or you email us and mention your show, Whitney, then we will give them a free hour to consult with them and go over it and assess what is right for the you know that property and if it's a good deal. If you want us to sign a non-disclosure, non-circumvent, we'd be more than happy to do it, but we know mm-hmm. that this market's too small to try to cut around people. That's not that's not our goal and our objective. And so we'd be able to offer that up to your community. One of the things I always like to do in is we're part of a, a group of 35,000 people as well. And there's a Facebook community and in that community, people post questions. And so I'm constantly searching through there to try to find the harder questions or through bigger pockets to see how we can just add value to people and give. And I think that's you know one of the one of the things that we really enjoy doing in our company is you know just helping people that are a little bit newer in the in the journey and you know it's a bigger team concept than what I was first taught when I was first taught was just focus on yourself and don't let your competitors know anything about it. But my perspective on that has changed dramatically. Scott, I'm, again, I'm grateful for your time and coming back on the show again. You're definitely an expert in this space, and you know, just love the conversation and you being willing to share about what the pandemic's done to your business and even growth, you know, just through the pandemic and just that long-term perspective. I love that thought process and just having that mindset too of thinking uh, long-term, whether it's leaving your day job or whether it's during a pandemic and even a few things like up early and those quiet walks on the beach, how important those are. So grateful again for your time. Any other way the listener, you know, should get in touch with you, how can they do that? They can do that through two different ways. So info at Coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com. Or they can go to our web, our website, codamg.com, and they can fill out the form there. And that will get to us. And either myself or our director of sales and acquisition, Martin Teradena, will be reaching out. You know, those are the two of the best ways to get hold of us. And, you know, please reference your show so that we have a, a frame of reference and know that, you know, we can contribute that back to you, Whitney. Don't go yet. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I would love it if you would go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. I want to hear your feedback. It makes a big difference in getting the podcast out there. You can also go to the Real Estate Syndication Show on Facebook so you can connect with me and we can also receive feedback and your questions there that you want me to answer on the show. Subscribe too so you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, I want to keep you updated. So head over to lifebridgecapital.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with me, sign up on the contact us page so you can talk to me directly. Have a blessed day and I will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.